Good Valentine's Day. Very romantic day. So I hear my wife's in Russia right now, visiting her family. By the way, my name is Stephen Crawford. I'm on staff here with Challenge. Uh, I've been married for about two and a half, almost three years, actually. And believe it or not, um, I never was in a relationship on Valentine's Day until the first year of my marriage. Because even when I was dating my wife, we, we dated long distance. We were never even in the same place during Valentine's Day. So at age, how old am I now? 32, that was my first Valentine's Day with a real live human <laughs> female. Uh, yeah, as opposed to imaginary. So I'm turning off my auto lock so I can have my notes up here and my, not have to go back and forth with my phone. Um, so what I did on Valentine's Day, instead of um, taking my beautiful and lovely wife out for dinner or something, I went on Facebook and Instagram and wrote uh, underneath any photo of like uh, some guys uh, praising his wife or his girlfriend, I wrote, hacked, under it. <laughs> As if, like, the only reason he was writing nice things was because his wife had hacked his Instagram. Yeah. Jo I find that jokes get funnier when you have to explain them. Um, so we're in the third part of a three-week series uh, that was... Um, started off in the first two weeks by Eric, so he's, he spoke the last two weeks, and the theme of this series, uh, he very nicely allowed me to step in and uh, do this third, um, third talk. This is very much his series of talks that he designed. The first one is called Focus. Uh, the first one, uh, two weeks ago, part one, was uh, what we're talking about when we talk about focus is what should we as Christians focus on versus what does the world around us try and distract us with? So as, as Christians, we need to maintain our focus on certain things that we're constantly trying to be distracted from. So uh, the first one was, uh, the world tells us to focus on the here and now, this life, the Bible. Jesus tells us to focus on eternity, things that will last forever. Last week, this was a, I, I love this talk this week. I found it very helpful. I don't know if you guys were here last week, but Eric spoke about um, faithfulness versus success. So the world tells us, focus on your productivity. What's coming out of your life, the success that you're seeing. Whereas the Bible tells us, focus on faithfulness and let God take care of the fruit that comes from it. So this third part, this third week, we're going to talk about the contrast between behavior modification and heart transformation. Now, you, you probably guess uh, the one that we're going to focus on, that we're, the Bible tells us to focus on is the second one, heart transformation, not behavior modification. We will talk about that in great detail. Before I begin, let me pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we come before you, uh, empowered by the Spirit to listen to you. Father, uh, we don't want tonight to be about rhetoric, about some persuasive argument. We don't want it to be about uh, human reasoning or logic. Lord, we want it to be about hearing your voice. As we listen to these scriptures, as we talk about them together, as we listen to them, hear them, 
may we be transformed from the inside. Would you open our ears to hear tonight? Would you open our hearts to receive from you? Lord, may the fruit of tonight be a new, a deeper, more profound understanding of your gospel, your kingdom, of what you are. May no one leave here unchanged tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. So the passage that we're going to look at, we're going to look at a couple different places, but uh, the main thing, the main, the main scripture for tonight is from Matthew 23, 23 through 28. This is what I call the uh, comments section of the Bible. Uh, you'll see why I, I say that in a second. Here we go. Let's read it. It's all up there if you want to look up or you can look at your Bibles or uh, whatever you want to do. Matthew 23, 23 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the, then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now who's speaking here? This is gentle, loving Jesus, right? <laughs> if, if, if this happened today, I, I think some church leaders would get around and be like, you got to tone down your rhetoric. right? You do not argue that way. You're going to alienate these people. This is Jesus, though. Right? So if he is using this sort of heightened, extreme language, then we know that something important and profound is at stake. Yeah? When he uses these, this, this imagery, this metaphor, uh, that is, is so exaggerated, right? You strain out a gnat. All right, this is, this is what you got. You got a, a cup of milk, and you see that there's a gnat inside of it. And you're like, I, I can't swallow this gnat. I'm going to pull up my strainer. I'm going to strain it out. And while you're doing that, you swallow an entire camel. <laughs> That's the image, right? It's impossible. No one can do that. You can imagine you're straining out the gnat, and this giant camel just goes in your mouth. I mean, it's obviously an absurd image um, that Jesus is trying to drive home this point. And the person that he's aiming this at, the person that he is calling a whitewashed tomb, who are they? The Pharisees. Ooh, the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? All right, the Pharisees, um, you know, they're like... Uh, Okay, let me, let me give you a little breakdown of what's, what's going on in the, Ju, the, the Judea, the, 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 the uh, Israel of Jesus' day. Okay? If, you, if you read the Bible, you know about the Pharisees. You might know about another group of people called the Sadducees. Okay? So Judaism, uh, the Judaism of Jesus' day was an ethnic religion. That meant that it was tied to the ethnicity of the people that were practicing it. 
So to be a Jew meant not just to be a, a, a part, a, like a Christian, you know, like a, a religious person. It meant that you were a specific ethnicity. That's still, in fact, often what Jew means. So within that broad ethnic identity, there were tons of individual Judaisms, different ways of practicing their Jewish faith. Uh, some of them were uh, pretty, pretty um, what we would think of kind of nominal. They were, outwardly, you would have thought, this is just a Roman. This is a normal Roman. But actually, it was a Jew. This is kind of how, how, the, how uh, the Herodians were. This is a group of Jews. Another group of Jews, the Sadducees, they were associated with um, kind of intellectual elite of Jerusalem. They, ran, they were also very powerful. They ran the temple. Um, there was another group of uh, kind of the, the wild men of Judaism. These were the, the Essenes. Uh, and they were like, screw everything. We're going to go out and live in the desert all on our own. Uh, John the Baptist probably re resembled an Essene. You know, this guy who's out in the desert wearing camel, what was it, camel hair or whatever, clothing, and eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, that's, that's the, the Essene uh, aesthetic. Uh, so one of these groups, one among many, is the Pharisees. Now, if you, if you read the Bible, you, if you read the Gospels, um, just kind of on the surface, you might get the impression that there was one bad guy, and it was the Pharisees. Well, that, that's not exactly true, okay? But what, what, who were the Pharisees? This is what I think of the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were the worst, right? The Pharisees are the worst. <laughs> the Pharisees are just the worst. All right, the, the Pharisees, uh, I like to think of the Pharisees as uh, hum the humble braggers of the Bible. You guys know what, like, humble bragging is? That used to be a thing a couple years back. I don't know if it still is. And the internet culture changes so fast, I know. But humble bragging is like, if I were to get up here and I was like, guys, I have really been struggling with humility this week because people have been telling me left and right how great I am. Oh, it's so awful. <laughs> or, uh, you know, when, it, when a girl, like, tweets out, oh, my gosh, so embarrassing. This guy hit on me at Starbucks, and I wasn't even wearing any makeup. And you're like, is that, was that really embarrassing for you? <laughs> Are you sure? Because you're telling everybody about it. <laughs> a humble brag is when, when you want to brag, but you want people to know something great about yourself, but you want to do it in a way that doesn't sound like you're actually bragging. Yeah? Now, why, why do I say that the Pharisees were like this? Well, this is why the Pharisees are the worst, okay? Jesus tells a story about this Pharisee who goes in the temple to pray. And he stands and he prays, and he says, Lord, thank you that you did not make me like other men. Oh, that's the worst, right? Thank you that you made me so wonderful, Lord. It's like kind of humility, you know, Lord, you did it. But it's also bragging, like, just so you know, he did a really good job. <laughs> oh, the worst. Where else are the Pharisees the worst? Okay, here's another story why the Pharisees are the worst. Jesus goes into a synagogue, and there's a guy with a, uh, a withered hand. I don't know, something was wrong with his hand. Um, and uh, Jesus says, stretch out your hand. He stretches out his hand, and his hand is healed. Jesus heals him. Incredible. Amazing. This guy who had a useless arm, now he has a useful arm. And what do the Pharisees do? It's the Sabbath. Ah. <laughs> oh! the worst <laughs> well okay so we're all very accustomed to thinking of the pharisees as the worst and definitely in the bible 
they often seem like they are indeed the worst. But I want to blow your mind tonight. Were they really the worst? <laughs> Who were the Pharisees really? Okay, what's remarkable about these guys, the Pharisees, was not so much that they were so different, so opposite, so opposed to Jesus. What was interesting about them was actually how similar they were to him. How close the Pharisees were, both in, in, in like who they were, where they came from, and what they taught and believed. So who were the Pharisees? That's a question. First of all, the Pharisees were mainly rural. Now, if you read the Bible, you might think, okay, the Pharisees, they were like controlling all the powers of Israel, and they were like manipulating the Romans so that eventually Jesus would get crucified by them. And it was the Pharisees that were in power and oppressing Jesus and his followers. Anyone got that, maybe got that impression from New Testament, from the Gospels? No. The Pharisees themselves were on the outs. They did not have power. They, main, they, they were not very uh, present in Jerusalem. There were some in Jerusalem. But they were mainly out in the Galilean countryside. They were mainly in the rural areas. Who else came from Galilee and from the rural areas? Jesus did. Most of his followers as well. What else? The Pharisees were very devout. If you uh, looked at all the different um, religious groups of the day, like the kind of extremists were the Essenes. They, they went out to the middle of nowhere and uh, just had their little extreme religious communities. They're like, we need to separate ourselves out from the world. But kind of the second most devout and maybe the more realistically devout were the Pharisees. If you talk to the Sadducees, they were like, you know, they, you know, they were outwardly kind of religious, but they, they, didn't, they weren't really devout. They're, they're very compromised. They uh, were very much about power, the power that they enjoyed, the wealth that they enjoyed. Other Jewish groups were, you know, virtually indistinguishable from uh, the Roman world that they lived in. But the Pharisees, they were keeping the flame alive. What else? The Pharisees, now this isn't universally true, but many of them were waiting for a Messiah. They were expecting that uh, a prophet, maybe Maybe Elijah was going to return. Maybe the, the prophet that Moses had promised was going to come. Maybe the Davidic king that had been talked about in uh, the promises made to David was going to come. Someone was going to come. They were waiting for him. They were expecting him. They were looking for him. In fact, when they heard about John the Baptist, they go out and they ask, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the one that was sent? They were looking for Jesus. What else? They cared deeply about Torah, or they cared deeply about the law. Who else cared deeply about the law? Jesus did. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish Torah. I have come to fulfill it. So th these Pharisees, when you think about it that way, these guys, they cared about the, the words of God that had been given to them that had been entrusted to the Jewish people. They were the ones that really cared about him, took him seriously. They were waiting for and expecting a Messiah. They were devout. They were, they were eagerly awaiting. 
Now, uh, what do we make of Jesus' critiques of the Pharisees? Now, did you know that if you um, take all of the, the words that Jesus speaks in the gospel, so the entirety of the um, words that we actually have from Jesus' mouth recorded in all of history, and you put it back to back so it was like one long speech, it would be about 55 minutes long if you read it in a nice normal pace. And, of course, I'm including in that uh, some of Jesus' um, less helpful words like, you know, what is that to me, woman? And <laughs> not exactly a lot of teaching content in that. But Jesus, uh, really, we only have about 55 minutes worth of Jesus' teaching. So uh, I've heard sermons that are, like, longer than everything that Jesus ever said. <laughs> uh, and he said in, in, in those 55 minutes... Um, Plenty of things. What was my point with that? Oh, yeah. So uh, what, the, reason, the reason I'm saying that is we actually do not have a lot recorded of what Jesus said and did during the Sermon on the Mount. If you think about the fact that Jesus for three years was walking around all over Galilee and Judea, teaching everywhere, doing things all the time, healing all these people. I mean, and all we got is 55 minutes worth of it. And in fact, you can read through all four Gospels, maybe two, three hours, depending on how fast you read. So that's, that's all that we have. So uh, the people that were writing these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're taking all that they know and experience and have heard about Jesus, and they're condensing it down into four life accounts, very abbreviated the highlights, the important things. And the things that they included in there, guided by the Holy Spirit, are relevant, I think, both for the time that they were writing and for eternity. So there is something about the Pharisees. I'm guessing that Jesus had some pretty strong rebukes and critiques of other groups within Judaism, other than just the Pharisees. I'm guessing that there was lots of times where he was opposed by groups other than the Pharisees. But it just so happened that he interacted a lot with them, and it was recorded because it is important for us to know something about pharisaical belief, something about what they taught and believed is eternally relevant for our own experience of the faith. I think sometimes it is the, the, the small mistakes that are much more dangerous than the really obvious big ones, right? If I came and I told you, that uh, I, I knew that there was a new God and it was a lizard king who I had seen on the moon, you probably, I, I wouldn't get much credibility with you. But if I came in and just started making these small little changes, little tweaks, and you had to spend like two weeks with me before you figured out something was off in what I was saying, do you see how that would be more dangerous than, than the other? It's a small thing sometimes. So we have preserved for us uh, Several long critiques of the Pharisees that Jesus makes. Now, what is the substance of his two critiques? I, I identified basically two things that he is critical of the Pharisees for. The first one is their failure to receive him as the Messiah. Their failure to understand who he was. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see Pharisees coming up to him again and again and asking him if he's the Messiah. And asking for proof. Are you the one that was sent? 
Give us a sign and we'll believe. There were sufficient signs for them to have believed, but they failed to receive it. So they should have known and should have recognized it. Now, uh, although this is related to the second critique that he make of them, ma makes of them, for our purposes tonight, we're not going to focus on that one. We're going to focus on the second critique. So the second one that he makes is that they have elevated external things dealing with the law over the heart, over what is inside. This is uh, the point of what we see in, in two of his longer critiques of them. So the, the first um, place where, where Jesus kind of goes, goes off on the Pharisees, he doesn't mention them by name in this one, but in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, at the, in Matthew 6, 1 through 17, he talks about hypocrites who uh, practice like religious rituals uh, in ways where they only, they only focus on the outside. He talks about uh, a guy who is fasting and makes sure that everyone knows that he is fasting, right? So this is the guy that goes on and says, for Lent, I'm giving up social media. So just so you know, here on Facebook and Twitter, I'm giving this up. If you want to get a hold of me, you're going to have to text me because I'm giving it up. Right? Makes it very obvious. So if anyone did that, I apologize. But, but uh, you know, it's a, the guy that's fasting, and he just goes on and on about how hungry he is. And Jesus says, well, what's the point if you're fasting? Is it so that everyone can know that you're fasting? Then congratulations, you've got your reward. Everyone knows they think of you as a wonderful, religious, um, observant person. But is that the point of fasting? Same thing with prayer. The guy that goes out and prays on the street corner, you know, <laughs> very obviously praying to the Lord, thanking him uh, so that everyone can see. So everyone will know how incredible a prayer I am, how devoted to praying. When I, when I was in college, um, I, I started, I, I tried, was getting into the habit of praying every day. And it, it, this passage just, like, would hit me right in the conscience because I always was, would hope that my roommate would come home and catch me praying. <laughs> uh, and I, like, I knew that was wrong, so I was like, I, I got to make sure that he doesn't come home when I'm praying. But then I, I find myself thinking, well, then, you know, but it kind of ruins a little bit of the, the fact that I'm praying. You know, I want people to know that I'm praying. But that's not the point of prayer. There's more to be said about that subject. But that, that's what he says in, in that. The second place is here in uh, Matthew 23. In fact, it, it occupies basically all, the whole chapter of Matthew 23. There's seven times where Jesus says, woe. Woe to you. I mean, he goes off on the Pharisees. It really, I, I, I'm absolutely convinced he would get rebuked by our, our like, our modern culture if he, if he went, if, if I went off on, like, I don't know, some person I disagreed with theologically the way Jesus does, I would have a terrible reputation for that. I'm just saying, it's different culture, different times, but Jesus is very serious about this. Because what they have done is they have focused on external observance, the altering and modification 
of behaviors in specific ways so that on the outside they look good and look devout. That's why he calls them whitewashed tombs. That is one of the most brilliant metaphors in the whole scriptures, right? You've got a tomb. Inside is a rotting, dead, unclean body. To come in contact with it would make you unclean, exclude you from the community. And what do they do with that? They, they paint the outside of it beautifully. That's what these Pharisees are. <clears throat> now, why, why are these critiques important? Why is it so important that Jesus cares so much about an obscure religious group in first century Judea? Because, by the way, there aren't any Pharisees left as far as I'm aware, right? I don't, you guys know any Pharisees? I don't know any Pharisees. They're not, like, walking around trying to, like, get us Christians to become Pharisees. Why are these critiques important? Well, for one thing, we see in Acts 15, 1 through 5, that uh, at, at a certain point in, in the ministry of Paul, some men come up to the church where he is, and they start to tell people, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it turns out, where do you think these guys came from? It turns out that these are Christian converts who used to be Pharisees. It's true. Acts 15.5. It says, then some who used to belong, or you, actually it says actively, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees that had become Christians. They stood up and they said, we have to require that these Gentiles follow the law of Moses. They have to be circumcised. They have to stop eating unclean foods. Etc. 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 It's continuing. In, in this controversy that is, occurs because the Pharisees have sneaked their way into uh, Christian circles <clears throat> is actually the reason why the book of Galatians was written. We have a whole book written about problems that were introduced into Christianity by these dastardly Pharisees. Now, I, I actually think that there was a fair number of Christians, wonderful, sincere, believing Christians, that used to be Pharisees. So I, I, I think that some of those Pharisees, they did good. Like Paul himself, actually. You know, Paul, he used to be a Pharisee. So I, I think that some of these Pharisees, um, the ones that were eagerly awaiting the um, Messiah, became uh, fervent followers of Jesus Christ, sincere and authentic. I, I can't prove that, but because the only one we know of is Paul. But I, I, I think that's true. But now, when, when these Gospels, accounts of Jesus' life, are written 20 years later, Luke, Matthew, Mark, John, they, you, they make sure that we know that these problems that, that were introduced through a pharisaical understanding of religion are still a problem and still need to be opposed. <clears throat> now, I, I think that this pharisaism, as I'm calling it, you can go to the next one, is uh, both sincere and insincere pharisaism. What do I mean by that? I think that there are some people who are absolutely convinced that this sort of understanding of religion is the way that God intends religion to be. Then there are some people that don't really think that, don't really care, but because of the culture that they live in, it's important to appear to be a sincerely Christian person. And so they're putting on the front 
Does that, does that make sense? Sincere and insincere. Uh, in, in theological circles, what we're talking about here is sometimes referred to as natural religion. Natural religion. And it's called that because it is the natural inclination of sinful human hearts. It is what they naturally think the purpose of religion is. What the Pharisees are doing, their interpretation of Judaism, and that interpretation which later made its way into Christianity, is an effect of sin in our hearts and in our minds. It's natural. All the religions of the world think about religion in this way. So, what is the problem with Pharisaical thinking? Well, let me tell you a, 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 my story. I don't want to go longer than Jesus here, so let me see how much time I have. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let me tell you in, in brief my story. So, I, was, um, I grew up in a Christian family, um, but I, I was a very nominal Christian for uh, all of my high school and early college experience. I, if you'd asked me what I was, I would have said that I was a Christian, but I it didn't influence the way I lived or act or thought really at all. Um, it was just, you know, a kind of, yeah, I believe in God. And I mostly try and, I, you know, I try and be a good person. That was kind of my conception of, uh, uh, of what religion was. Um, until the summer in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. Now, when I was in college, I was a classical percussionist. And I wanted to become the world's greatest classical percussionist. Now, that is relevant to my story because in the summer in between my freshman and sophomore year, uh, I grew up in a border town, and so me and my friends on the weekends, we used to walk across the border to the bars because it was um, drinking age was 18 there, so we could drink legally, um, and then we would walk back. Uh, my house was literally walkable. I could walk to Mexico from my house. True story. Uh, I was walking back one night all alone from, from a Mexican bar, um, I was not like super drunk, but I was slightly um, inebriated. And uh, I was walking along the sidewalk. I was very close to the edge. And this car uh, came by at like, it seemed like it was like 80 miles per hour. It's probably like 20 miles per hour. But it like nipped like the edge of my arm, the, the mirror. I could feel it like hit my arm. I kind of went like that. It was my right hand. Now, what happens if you're a classical percussionist and a car slams into your right hand. It's very difficult to be a classical percussionist with a permanently damaged arm. So uh, at that moment, I sobered up quickly, and I thought to myself, I almost lost my entire career right there. And I was suddenly gripped by fear. What had prevented me from getting hit there? My conclusion was that God had prevented that car from hitting me in order to wake me up. I sobered up really quick, and I went home, and I was terrified, and I couldn't sleep all night long. I was like, God is, the, the next time, this time God spared me, next time he's not going to spare me. I was literally afraid to get, in, get into a car and climb, because I, I, I thought that uh, God was going to do something to my arm, stop me from being a percussionist. That fear uh, was, you know, as it sounds, a little bit irrational, and it wore off quickly. However, I still, uh, there was still this kind of residual uh, like awe and fear of God. And I felt like I, I need to kind of clean up my life and become a better Christian 
uh, if I really want God to help me out in my career. If I really want to become successful as a percussionist, then I, I needed to get right with God. So I got back to school my sophomore year, and I, at first I was like, uh, I'm going to try and be like a nicer guy and a better person. So I, I tried to be a better guy and a nicer person for a while, and after about a month of that, I was like, how's it going? I was like, okay, but I don't know if this is like the difference maker here. I mean, I'm slightly nicer to people, I think, when I can remember to do that. Uh, but I was still partying every weekend. I was like, okay, I need to cut out partying out of my life because I, I'm pretty sure that if my parents knew about this, they'd be very mad, and they're Christian. So I'm going to cut out partying. I'm not going to get drunk anymore. So I stopped getting drunk. After a month and a half of that, I still didn't feel like I was right with God. I still didn't feel like I was good enough. So I was like, I need, to go to, I need to go to church more often. So I started going to church every Sunday. Then I started to um, go to church twice a week. And then I joined the Christian fellowship at my school. And I started to go to as many meetings of it as I could. Then I noticed that people there were going to a prayer meeting at 7.30 in the morning. So I started going to that. And one day, one of the guys there said, we should do this every day. And I was like, <laughs> okay, every day it is. We started doing that every day. Then one day, a guy, uh, one of the guys in the prayer group, he said that he was memorizing Romans, the book of Romans. And I was like, what, the whole book? And he said, yes. <laughs> uh, and I was like, well, I'm going to do that too. So I did. I memorized the whole book of Romans. It took me like a month and a half. But... This whole time, I, as I was adding things on, the, what, was, what was motivating me to do more and more and more was this sense, this nagging sense, that it was not good enough. It wasn't enough. Finally, at the end of the year, um, this sense, this, this guilt, this kind of shame I was feeling, every time I would make a mistake, every time I would do something that uh, fell short of the kind of standard I had set, just kind of overwhelmed me, and I just gave up. I went out one weekend, got drunk with all my old friends, and I was like, it's not working. It's done. God, take my arm. <laughs> Guess that's it. Uh, so uh, the next morning, as I was hungover, I woke up. A, a guy came to my, my room, and he said, hey, I want you to go to this summer program. It was kind of like this uh, summer impact. Or, I'm sorry, Project Impact. Um, and I was like, that's the last thing that I want to do. But it's the only thing I haven't tried. So maybe I'll do it. So I went to it. I signed up for it. It was in Vermont. And the first night I was in this summer project, <clears throat> a guy stood up. And he preached a gospel message. Now, I don't remember what the whole point of his message was. It might have had nothing to do with what I got out of it. But what he said at one point in this talk, was that Jesus Christ had died for our sins and that by being born again, we would be forgiven of all of them. And that by believing in him, we would receive life. And I'm sure, I've been going to church like three times a week for months. I'm sure at some point somebody said that in one of their messages. But it didn't like hit my heart until that day that night. It made sense. 
this is the problem. We're, we're going to go through these individual problems, but I, I, I want you to know that this is something that every person can fall into. This manner of thinking. This is the substance of all non-Christian religions. It is about doing enough things, modifying, changing your behavior, becoming worthy enough for acceptance with God. That's what I was trying to do day after day after day. If I do this, if I do this, then I will be worthy of acceptance with God, and he'll give me a great career. I'll go to heaven. I think I've got one of those two things. I've got heaven. I'm not a classical percussionist anymore. So what, what is the problem then? What were the faults that we see in this? Well, let's go through them. I, I see a couple. First of all, the problem with, with this pharisaical thinking is that it misunderstands what the entire point of the law is. Why did God give commands? When Jesus says that I came to fulfill the law or the Torah, what did he mean by that? Did he mean I came so that I could be an example? And if you, get, if you do enough things like my example, then you'll be good enough? No. The law was given. Romans 3.20. Not so that men may be justified before God. In other words, so that they would be good enough before God for acceptance with him. But the law was given so that every man may be aware of how, fall, how, how far he has fallen short of it. If you, like the Pharisees, are using the law to measure yourself, then you don't understand it. You don't understand why it's given. Second problem. It doesn't require God's work in our lives. It's the opposite. It says, if we work hard enough, then we can get ourselves in the place where God will do something for us. My whole moral effort, my whole Christian life, is not God's power in me, but my power to get close enough to know God. If our religion does not require God as its power, then we've misunderstood it. Third, it produces pride or shame, or most likely, both simultaneously. How is that possible? Well, uh, this is how it's possible. As I was uh, trying to do all these good things, every time that I did something that I marked as good, I had done it. And I deserve credit for it. It produced pride in me. And then I would start to feel that pride, and I would immediately be filled with shame. <laughs> it would like nullify the whole good thing that I had done because I felt pr pr proud about it. Most likely, though, is that be because of the weakness of our moral character, because we are sinful, eventually, the shame that comes from our moral striving will overwhelm us. And either we will become hypocrites that are about external appearances and are aware of just, but don't care about how sick we are on the inside. Or else it causes us to give up the whole enterprise altogether and abandon religion as useless, empty, and false. If you talk to people that are laboring in these sorts of religions, Islam, many um, 
uh, Christian denominations, like the Roman Catholicism often, Eastern Orthodoxy often, there is a, a, a constant sense of failure, of inability to be good enough. <clears throat> Fourth, it brings you under judgment. By trying to be good enough for God, we are saying to God that we want you to judge us by what we have done. Does that make sense? Paul says, you who want to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. If you try to be good enough, if you try to live, like accumulate enough merit, you're asking God to judge every single part of your life. If you're like me, that will be a disaster for you. Okay, finally, fifth reason. Why, what is the problem with this pharisaical thinking? This is probably the worst problem. It does not work. It is impossible. You will never, ever, ever, ever be good enough. Your efforts at your behavior modification will fail. <clears throat> so instead, I'm going to wrap this up here. Instead, Jesus says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the good that is produced in your life, the outward actions that are worthy and meritorious, will come from a good that is inside of you. And unless there is good inside of you, all your efforts at modifying your behavior will fail. Jesus cares about what is on the inside. Next verse, we see that at the heart of the gospel. Who's memorized this verse? This is like the, isn't the first semester? You guys can, first memory verse? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the most liberating, most glorious truth of all the scriptures, isn't it? If you are in Christ, then you are new. The old is gone and the new has come. That is what happened to me that day in the fraternity house in Vermont. When that man preached the gospel, the inside was transformed. I was born again. Old things were gone. The inside, the heart, was transformed. So briefly, four keys for the transformation of the heart. First thing is you must be born again to be transformed. Second is that the uh, the ongoing transformation that occurs. So what we refer to in this is uh, something called already and not yet. Anyone ever heard that? Already and not yet. What that means is that through the gospel, by believing in it, you are already transformed. And yet, you are being transformed. Your behavior and the externals are being changed because what is inside has been transformed. And what is it that spurs that transformation in your outward life? 
It is the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Those that are born again are born again of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you, and it's changing you. Third, this was a really important one for me. You are allowed to fail and to learn from your, fear, from your failures. <clears throat> the Christian who is being transformed is necessarily undergoing a process. And that process includes failure within it. Heart transformation by the power of the Spirit <clears throat> involves learning from our failures. And fourth, it is done in the community with other people. Because uh, no longer are we uh, just projecting something externally. No longer are we obsessed with what other people see us as. But in community, we can be transformed as we are vulnerable, as we are um, sharing who we truly are. All right, that's all. What do you think? <clears throat> Jesus, thank you for your word here. God, we do want to be a people that are transformed in our hearts. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has been um, laboring under this pharisaical view of religion, that it is about being good enough or doing enough or fixing themselves, changing their behavior, Lord, that the gospel would be heard, their hearts would be opened that they would be free, free to be a new creation, free to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want our hearts to be made new. May this community be a community of being transformed by your Spirit in the inside. In your name we pray. Amen.